0: The Nature, Government and Function of the Church A Reassessment 2001, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey 2. The Nature of the Church So far we have looked at the etymology of the term "ecclesia," translated as Church in the AV, the different ways in which this term is employed in Scripture and how the Church is defined institutionally. We have seen that, although in the New Testament era, the Christian church did not exist as a legally defined societal structure, it did exist as an institute of God's word, and that the existence of the church as a legally defined societal structure is the inevitable consequence of the Great Commission and the church's success in its calling to make disciples of the nation's. Before going any further, however, we must understand the biblical definition of the church, that is, the church in the broadest sense, not merely the church as an institution. Since only by keeping this clearly in our minds shall we avoid coming to false conclusions about the nature and function of the church, since only by keeping this clearly in our minds shall we avoid coming to false conclusions about the nature and function of the church? This biblical definition is like a compass to keep us from straying into erroneous notions about the church. The Bible defines the church as the body of Christ. Ephesians 1.22-23, 1, Colossians 1.18, 24, 1 Corinthians 12 twelve to thirteen twenty seven to twenty eight Romans twelve five. This is the company of those who have been called out of the world of sin and unbelief, into the kingdom and household of God, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit John three three and five Ephesians two nineteen. The whole body of those united to Christ by faith, whom Christ loved, and for whom he offered himself up as a propitiation for sin, in order to redeem them. From the curse of the law and reconcile them to God. Ephesians 5.25, Romans 3.25, 1 John 4.10, Galatians 3.13, Romans 5.10. The Catholic Church. This church exists by divine will. It is the product of God's action in regenerating men, not the product of human will. Jesus said of Peter's faith, Blessed are you, Simon Barjuna, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and he tells us that it is on this rock that is the gift of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man that he will build his church Matthew sixteen seventeen to eighteen The Church is the body of Christ, the company of the regenerate. Whatever other terms are used of the church, whatever other definitions come into play as we seek to understand the nature of the church, we must always, ultimately, come back to this one starting point. This definition is the touchstone by which our doctrine of the church must be guided. Obviously, our discussion cannot end here, but it must start with this definition and always refer back to it. Our doctrine of the Church must be consistent with this definition at all points, and the extent to which it departs from this definition is the extent to which it is erroneous. However, this definition alone, although it is the definition that the New Testament gives us, does not account for all the biblical data bearing on the nature of the Church in its visible manifestation in the world. Life is complex, and biblical revelation gives us historical narrative in down-to-earth, realistic terms that takes account of that complexity. General definitions have to be applied. A number of sub-definitions have, therefore, come into use in order to account for the biblical data, contributing to a comprehensive doctrine of the church These sub-definitions are very proper and useful, and no criticism of them is made here. In fact, I use them approvingly. But we must understand that these are not biblical definitions. That is to say, the Bible does not use these definitions. The Bible defines the church simply as the body of Christ. These are definitions devised by men trying faithfully to come to terms with the variety of statements that the Bible makes about the Church and attempting to understand the Scriptures in the light of the historic manifestation of the Church on earth. The two common pairs of definitions used by theologians are a. The Church visible and invisible and b. The Church militant and And triumphant. It is important to remember that these terms are not used to designate different churches, but the same church, the body of Christ, looked at from different perspectives. Let us look briefly at these two pairs of definitions. A. The Church Visible consists of all those throughout the world who profess faith in Christ together with their children. 1 Corinthians 1:2 1, 7-14 Acts 2:39 According to R.B. Kuyper, these are those whose names appear on church registers. This is a bureaucratic definition that I shall reject. I do not think it can be established biblically. In fact, there is not a single shred of biblical evidence to support such a notion which is essentially quite a modern idea. Nevertheless, despite the totally inadequate nature of this definition, I think what Kuiper was trying to get at was the notion that the church visible consists of members of local churches. Ordinarily, the church visible, that is, those professing faith in Christ together with their children in a particular area, should manifest itself institutionally as a local church. But the church visible should not be identified as coterminous with the institutional church, which is one expression or manifestation of the church among many, namely the body of Christ manifested as an organized public religious cultus, that is, a particular covenant community assembling together for corporate worship, ministry of the word, administration of the sacraments, and diaconal ministry. That is to say, the church visible manifests itself institutionally in history as a local church. But the institutional church is not an exhaustive manifestation of the church, the body of Christ on earth. The church manifests itself in history in other ways as well as in the form of the institutional church. The church visible, that is the body of Christ, cannot be reduced merely to the institutional church, therefore. The two are not coterminous. The local church, as an institution, is a much narrower concept than the church visible. The institutional church is thus the church visible, covenanted together as a local community for specific purposes, namely the practice and maintenance. Of the Christian public religious cultus. The Church invisible consists solely of those who are regenerate, born from above into the kingdom and household of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, faith itself being the gift of God through which the elect are brought into covenant fellowship with God. These two, the Church visible and invisible, should ideally be identical, but in fact they are not. Some profess faith who are hypocrites, some because they are deceived, others because they are deceivers. Since the church cannot know infallibly who are regenerate, it must accept false professors until by their words or actions they demonstrate their hypocrisy. Profession of faith and works consistent with that profession are thus the criteria for determining membership of the church visible. Nevertheless, when we speak of the church, visible and invisible, we are speaking of the same church, the body of Christ, not two different churches. And we should perhaps, as someone has suggested, speak of the church invisible and the church visible, rather than the visible church and the invisible church. Nevertheless, We have to posit the distinction between the church visible and invisible because our knowledge and understanding is fallible. But there is no church invisible to God. The church is totally visible to God, and he makes no such distinction. We make the distinction because, as human beings, our knowledge is fallible. The distinction between the church visible and invisible is thus merely a semantic tool necessitated by the fallibility of human knowledge. B. The Church Triumphant, according to Kuyper, is the Church in heaven, and the Church Militant is the Church on earth. For the purpose of this essay, I do not have any great problem with this definition, but it is vague and misleading, and I think it would be better stated that the Church Triumphant is the body of Christ, as it is definitively in Christ, and will one day be manifested in glory, that is, in the resurrection. In the matter of our future hope, the New Testament places the emphasis not on heaven, but on the resurrection. Our theology should be taken from the Bible, not Virgil's Aeneid, Book 6. Too many Christians talk of heaven, and the image this conjures up is more akin to the Elysian Fields, than the biblical vision of a resurrected life on earth. Heaven is the abode of God, so to speak, our Father in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is thus a synonym for the kingdom of God. Compare, for example, Matthew 3 2 and Mark 1 5. The church militant is the body of Christ as manifested in history. What I shall be dealing with in this essay, however, is the church visible and militant. The two are not exactly coterminous, though they should be. The church militant does not include hypocrites and false believers, since it is the body of Christ manifested in history, and such hypocrites are not truly members of the body of Christ. The church visible does include hypocrites and false believers, since this is the church that is visible to men. That is to say, it consists of those who are accepted as members of the church by men because of their profession and works. To the extent that members professing faith and showing works consistent with such a profession delude themselves and the church of which they profess to be members, and to the extent that such are accepted by the church as true believers, the church visible, does include hypocrites. There are two ways of viewing the church visible and militant. First, simply as the company or community of the redeemed, wherever they are and in whatever situation, vocation, etc., they find themselves. Thus, the church visible and militant is the body of Christians wherever they are and in whatever they are doing, the Christian teacher, Businessman, housewife, mother, parent, barmaid, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, at work, at play, at prayer, at home, etc. The New Testament uses the term ecclesia in this sense in Acts 5.11 and 8, one and 3. Second, the church, visible and militant, can be viewed as an organised public religious cultus a community of believers covenanted together for the preaching and teaching of the Christian scriptures, administration of the sacraments, corporate praise, worship and prayer, and the mutual support and encouragement of each other as a community of faith. That is to say, the company of believers can be seen also as an institutional church, a community of believers united as a particular congregation. It is in the church as an institution that the discrepancy between the church, invisible and visible, becomes most apparent. The institutional church does not create this discrepancy. That is, the discrepancy is not a result of the fact that the institutional church must exist, as it must by divine prescription. But it is in the institutional church that the problem is most obviously manifested, especially in an age of apostasy such as the 20th century, when so few churches can be found that have not apostasized doctrinally and compromised themselves with secular humanism. Nonetheless, the existence and assembling of the body of Christ as a local institution is biblical and commanded by God's word. It is an institute of God's word. Whatever criticisms are made of the institutional church, valid though they often are, especially in an age of egregious apostasy, it must not be forgotten that it exists by the institution of God's word and its functions are prescribed and defined clearly in God's word. It is clear from a consideration of these points that we use the word church in two different but overlapping senses. This has led to some confusion and often it has meant that the body of Christ has been reduced to the institutional church. This is a great error and in turn leads to great error. For example, John Mary gives an excellent biblical definition of the church. The church is the assembly of the covenant people of God, the congregation of believers, the household of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. It consists of men and women, called by God the Father, into the fellowship of his Son, sanctified in Christ Jesus, regenerated by his Spirit, and united in the faith and confession of Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Where there is such a communion gathered in Jesus' name, there is the Church of God, and all throughout the world, answering to this description, constitute the Church of God universal. To this, it needs only to be added that the words and confession of Christ Jesus, must not be understood to exclude regenerate infants. Unfortunately, Murray then goes on, rather inconsistently, to redefine the Church exclusively by its institutional aspect. It is all important to bear in mind that the Church of God is an institution it may never be conceived of apart from the organization of the people of God, visibly expressed and in discharge of the ordinances instituted by Christ. This is an extremely reductionist and unbiblical definition. Jesus never spoke of his church in this constricted way, nor of building it in such a limited fashion. On the contrary, he implicitly gave the lie to such a cramped and rigid definition when he said, Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Matthew eighteen, eighteen to It is to be noted here that the power of binding and loosing is not something given only to the church officers, that is, to the government of the church, since Christ says, again, if two of you agree on earth, It shall be done. The prayer of just two united Christians will have binding and loosing power. It is certainly true that the power of binding and loosing belongs to the whole congregation, even where such is mediated representatively through the eldership. Hence, Jesus says, Tell it to the church, Matthew 18, verse 17, that is, the ecclesia the whole congregation. But the power of binding and loosing belongs also to as few as two united Christians because, says Jesus, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. There is no requirement, or even mention here, of the church organised as an institution, but simply of two Christians united in purpose and prayer. Neither is there the requirement or even mention of elders convened to give such meetings formal sanction as the Church of Christ. Again, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Matthew 16 17-18. Seventeen to eighteen. The faith that comes from God, as a result of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, Ephesians two eight, Galatians five twenty two, is the rock upon which Christ builds His church. Christ does not state that the organization and visible expression of the church, in the discharge of the ordinances instituted by Himself, is essential to the church's being, but only. To the church's well-being ephesians four eleven to thirteen there is no mention in matthew sixteen seventeen to eighteen of such a requirement for the existence of the Church. No indication or suggestion that the Church cannot be conceived of apart from such institutions. to use Mary's own words, the church is the congregation of believers, the household of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit the body of Christ. It consists of men and women called by God the Father into the fellowship of his Son, sanctified in Christ Jesus, regenerated by his Spirit, and united in the faith and confession of Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Where there is such a communion gathered in Jesus' name, there is the Church of God. The Church may certainly be conceived of apart from the institutional organisation, precisely because Christ himself so conceived of it. Murray's definition, that is, the strict identification of the body of Christ as coterminous in every aspect with the institutional church, severely limits the body of Christ in its mission and function in the world. Indeed, it cuts the body of Christ off almost totally from the cultural mandate. This conclusion Murray spells out, though perhaps unconsciously, when he goes on to speak of the functions of the Church. Remember, he defines the Church as the body of Christ, that is, the community of the regenerate united to Christ through faith, without in the slightest indicating that the body of Christ has a much wider and more comprehensive commission than the institutional Church. The four areas in which the Church body of Christ is to function, according to Murray, are 1. Worship 2. Proclamation 3. Government of the Church and 4. Diaconal Ministry By identifying the body of Christ as strictly coterminous with the institutional church, Murray leaves the Church, that is, the body of Christ, helpless to affect and preserve the culture in which it lives by a hands-on encounter with, and in, that culture, thereby denying to the community of faith the means of bringing the whole of society into conformity with the whole counsel of God's word. It is as if the church and society were the crews of two different ships. The most that the church can do is to bellow from its own ship to the ship of culture, information about how the ship of culture should steer away from the rocks that threaten to destroy it but the church can never get into the ship of culture and do the steering outside the church meeting the ability of Christ's church to influence culture must be limited to proclamation and it is this on biblical reductionism this identification of the calling and ministry of the church body of Christ in the world with the legitimate God-prescribed, but much narrower calling of the church as an institution that has vitiated the church's ability to affect society for good, to leaven the whole lump of society in the 20th century. And it is this narrowly institutional and essentially clergy-centred view of the church's calling that must be overturned if the church is, once again, to be a transforming influence in the nation. A good example of the problems resulting from this restricted definition of the church is Murray's discussion of the relation between church and state. Murray limits the church in its influence in the political area to two menus – the pulpit and the press. Granted, as an institution, The Church's role in influencing political theory and practice is far more limited than the wider role of the community of faith, that is, the body of Christ. It would be wrong for the Church as an institution to seek to do the work of the magistrate. There is a biblical separation of powers here. Some members of the body of Christ, however, are called to be magistrates, and they must exercise their vocation as Christians and as Ambassadors of Christ. The magistrate also is to be subject to God's law and promote God's will and glory in his duty as a magistrate. He should also be a member of the church institutional, but he does not exercise his office as a Christian magistrate on behalf of the institutional church or in subjection to it, but as a Christian magistrate on behalf of Christ and in subjection to God's law. Those members of the body of Christ who are not magistrates will also exercise political influence via their votes at elections and via any other form of political action they may take. The body of Christ will thus be involved, or at least should be involved as a group of responsible citizens in areas where the institutional church May not go. It may be that someone will claim I have misrepresented Mary, and that he would, of course, accept my argument that Christians have a wider ministry or calling than that of the institutional church. That is, that they have a duty to think and act as Christians in obedience to God's word in all walks of life, and thereby to fulfil the cultural mandate. I quite accept the fact that Murray believed this. But the point is that Murray has so defined the church that the logic of his words carries this reductionist implication. Whether he is being inconsistent at this point and would have agreed with the substance of my argument, if not with the form of my words, is irrelevant. Others will not and will take his words to mean what they say not what he may have meant by them. This definition of the Church, the strict identification of the visible Catholic Church, the community of faith, as coterminous with the institutional Church, has been the cause of much mischief for a long time. It is vital, therefore, that Christians no longer think in these narrow terms. The Church as an institution is limited in its field of operation. God-ordained and essential though that field is. The body of Christ, the church, considered as the people of God, the community of faith, has a much wider brief, however. Its calling is to take dominion over the whole earth in the name of Christ, to possess his inheritance. Psalm 2, 7-12, Revelation 11-15, which is the Church's inheritance also by adoption into the household and family of God through union with Christ. Romans 8.17. Consider, for example, Psalm 149. The psalmist says unequivocally, Let the saints be joyful in glory, let them sing aloud upon their beds, let the high praises of God be in their mouths. Verses 5 to 6a. Is this referring to the church as an institution? If Murray's definition were correct, and the church may never be conceived of apart from the institution, that is, the organisation of the people of God visibly expressed and in discharge of the ordinances instituted by Christ, what are we to make of the remaining verses of the psalm which refer to the same saints? And a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains, and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute them, to execute upon them the judgment written. This honour have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Verses six B to nine. If the church may only be conceived of as an institution, as Murray claims, then the church, according to this psalm, must wield the sword of state. But this is incorrect, as Murray himself would have acknowledged. The only alternative is to acknowledge that the church may, indeed, must be conceived of, apart from the institutional church, in many of the individual and social spheres in which it has been called by Christ to function, as his body on earth. Otherwise, the separation of powers is at an end. The problem, however, is resolved if the church is not defined exclusively in terms of the institutional church. This psalm compromises Murray's limitation of the church in the political field severely, and shows to be untenable his assertion that the church may only be conceived of as the institutional church. For Murray, as soon as the saints step outside the sphere of the institutional church and its four functions, they effectively cease to be the church. But the church is the body of Christ. Those who are united to Christ through faith are not members of his body merely when they are at church or engaged in one of the four activities Murray defines as functions of the church. They do not cease to be members of Christ's body when they enter the political sphere or the business world or the world of the arts, etc. Christianity is a whole-life religion. There are no areas of neutrality. In every sphere of life, we are either for Christ or against him. Christ demands that we live out our faith in every sphere of life, because he is Lord of all things. This means that Christians must function as Christ's body in every area and sphere of life. That is to say, the church must function in every sphere of life. The church is the body of Christ. The only alternative is for the church to return to the cloister, to the sacred-secular divide that characterised medieval Roman Catholic theology and philosophy. The institutional church, however, has a much more limited function. It is vitally important that the church should not be reduced to the institutional church, therefore, if the body of Christ is to claim the world for Christ and bring all things into conformity with God's word. It is clear that the definition of the word church Its precise meaning and terms of reference has been a source of confusion among the best of theologians, and has led to dire consequences with regard to the Church's understanding of its divine calling in the fullest sense. Bearing in mind the distinction between the Church defined as an institution and the Church considered in the broadest sense as the body of Christ, the biblical definition, I offer the following definition of the Church the ecclesial institution, which attempts to avoid this confusion. There are two parts to this definition. One, the Church is an organised assembly or covenant community of those professing faith in Christ, together with their children. It is the body of Christ organised as a community of faith for specific purposes prescribed by God's Word. Viz. the maintenance of the Christian public religious cultus Two, the church is thus always a local institution. The definitive functions of the church, as set forth in the scriptures, do not allow the church to be anything other than a local institution. The administration of the sacraments, pastoral care and public worship can only take place in a local situation, and it is the regular exercise of these functions, together with the teaching of God's word, in a specific locality among the covenant community that defines the institutional church, that is, constitutes Christian public religious cultus. The importance of these two principles will become clear as we look at the government of the church as set forth in Scripture.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.